You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. We've got a real smarty on today's show. Daniel Kraft is a Stanford and Harvard-trained physician scientist, inventor, entrepreneur, and innovator. With over 25 years of experience in clinical practice, biomedical research, and healthcare innovation, Kraft has served as faculty chair for medicine at Singularity University and founded and is chair of Exponential Medicine, a program that explores convergent, rapidly developing technologies and their potential in biomedicine and healthcare. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. And you may be wondering, what does any of this have to do with real estate investing? Well, as we learn more about how artificial intelligence is being used for healthcare and other technological advancements, there most certainly will be an effect on real estate. If people are living longer, they won't be moving out of their homes as quickly, and that could contribute to the shortage of housing we're already experiencing. There also may not be much need for hospitals or even assisted living facilities. And we can certainly expect that a lot of people would outlive their money. So let's find out what Daniel has to say about all this. Daniel, welcome to The Real Well Show. Great to be here. Thanks. It is really an honor to have you here. I follow you guys closely at Singularity, and I think you're obviously on the cutting edge of what's happening out there. So again, thank you so much for sharing some of it with us today. As I mentioned, we have a lot of listeners from the Silicon Valley, a lot of people who are investing in real estate, uh, but a lot of people who are just probably wondering what the world's going to be like in the next 5, 10, 15, or even 20 years. I don't know if we can look that far out, but let's just kind of start with aging. How do you see medical advancements affecting how much longer and healthier we can live? Yeah, well, we're all getting older all the time, but the future is coming faster than some might think, particularly here in the quote-unquote Silicon Valley. A lot of people are interested in quote-unquote longevity, and some are interested in living forever. I think forever is a very long time. <laughs> I'm more interested, you know, I'm a physician. i you know, the chair of medicine at Singularity was just started to think more about, you know, health span rather than just lifespan. You know, if you look back even just 100 years, I think, you know, the life expectancy back in, you know, 100 years ago, 1910 or so before antibiotics and vaccines was, you know, 50s or so. And now we've, you know, dramatically, you know, we're up there in high 70s, I think, in the U.S., even though that's gone down a notch, I think, partly thanks to the opioid epidemic. But there is an opportunity to um, leverage, you know, sometimes very basic technologies, again, things like vaccinations, clean water, good food, to optimize our, our health and our health span. And in the longevity space, I think we are going to see more and more people living, you know, kids today, I've got three and five-year-olds, the odds of them living to 100 or longer are quite good, which means we need to rethink, you know, education, social constructs, you know, do people retire at age 65? Um, how do we think about in health insurance, life insurance, and you know, even real estate? Are people going to be aging in place? I think no one wants to be living to 110 in a nursing home, not able to you know, think, walk, talk, or communicate. Uh, we want to think about enabling tools to, uh, as folks have some physical and even mental decline, to use technologies to improve their quality of life and provide sort of resources to not you know, create a burden on society at the same time. So lots happening in the space. We can talk about everything, everything from longevity drugs to 3D printing organs. But bottom line, it still comes down to fundamentals. Uh, if you want to live a long, healthy life, you know, eat well, don't smoke, get 30 minutes of exercise a few times a week, have good social connections, sense of purpose. It sometimes isn't about magical new technologies, but doing the basics. 
Mm, very good point. I, I love that. All right. So right now, what is the average lifespan in the U.S.? I mean, I, I imagine it ranges. I think for women, it's early 80s and men, it's late 70s. And this is sort of all comers, certain ethnic groups, certain, you know, sometimes our genetic code is trumped by our zip code. And there's a lot of now focus on social determinants of health, understanding, you know, are you, do you have access to healthy foods? Are you near a market or are you only surrounded by fast food restaurants? But there's sometimes very dramatic five or 10 year differences in life expectancies, you know, one or two zip codes apart. So again, that sort of might matter who and where you are and where you live, but definitely it's creeping up. There's, you know, definitely though a question of, uh, you know, you might live into your 80s or 90s, but the risk of getting dementia is, is higher. You know, there's some estimates that, you know, once you're over 90, more than 50% have some form of dementia. And that's a critical issue. And we're learning to hopefully predict who's likely to get, you know, Alzheimer's maybe 10 or 20 years early and then potentially be proactive and find ways to stop or reverse it from occurring. Just like we take statins for folks who might have high risk of, of heart disease because their cholesterol is high, we'll hopefully start to identify folks earlier in their lives when they're younger and healthier and be much more proactive, which will give them that runway to live well into their 90s in a highly sort of health span function. So people should really should be meeting with their doctor and looking at any Alzheimer's prevention young, like are you saying in, in the 50s, 60s? Well, I mean, some folks do get brain issues earlier in life. There are some, mm -hmm. one of the challenges with things like Alzheimer's is now some new ways to predict it from your genetics, from like a 23andMe type profile, all the way to using a video game to track your eyes or some other forms of blood and eye tests. Um, the challenge is, what do you do about that? Are there? We know that being socially engaged, learning languages, you know, can be somewhat preventative, but there still isn't an obvious prevention or cure. More importantly, certainly good to see your doctor on a regular basis to be proactive to identify things you could be doing earlier in your life. A lot of them are behavioral based, you know, managing stress, uh, quitting smoking, being careful about your diet. All those are elements that are going to give you a longer, healthier life without waiting for some magical pill or therapy or gene therapy to um, save you once you have the problem. So there's a lot of technology that's emerging. Some of them are super simple. The, the world of quantified self, you know, we're only 10 years into the sort of that, since the Fitbit launched in 2009, and now we have an explosion of little wearable devices or sensors in your home or mattress that can give you insights. Are you, you know, 10,000 steps is probably not the answer. It turns out maybe only 4,500 is sort of the low base end to improve outcomes. But how do we start to measure our behaviors from our activity to our sleep, to our social interaction, to our heart rate and resting heart rate that we can use as tools to have insights ourselves as individuals, share that eventually with our clinical teams to really move from reactive sick care where folks sort of usually often wait for a disease to show up like a heart attack or stroke or cancer into an era that's much more continuous with data and when it can be much more proactive, meaning you as an individual, as a consumer, as a patient will hopefully own your health information your genetic information, use that in collaboration with your doctor and health team to uh, live a longer, healthier life and to be proactive about, you know, if you have a risk of a fall, you know, um, you know future-proofing your house with things in your bathroom, or if you have a risk of a certain disease, maybe getting screened earlier rather than later. So tons of potential, but often that comes down to the individual being proactive and, and not waiting for problems to, to occur. There's been some theories that that baby boomers and, and aging generations will be moving out of their homes and there'll be a surplus of homes because there won't be enough millennials able to buy those homes. But the more I hear about breakthroughs in, in healthcare, I just don't know if that's true. It seems like 
uh, seniors might be living in place longer. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, particularly, I mean, I live in the Silicon Valley area. You know, housing prices, <laughs> I know, are pretty extreme. People can't afford to move out in some cases. You know, mm-hmm. they they bought 20, 30 years ago, uh, unless they moved to you know Arizona or somewhere with lower housing prices. I'm not an economist, but I think as we look at you know the changes of demographics, how and where people live, somewhat are changing. Some people are doing you know shared housing to be able to afford to live in expensive areas. We've seen some folks who, as they get older, move into not sort of quote a retirement community, but sort of collaborative, you know, shared communities where they might have common areas, sort of central areas to do art and cooking, and they maintain those sort of social connections, which are super important mm-hmm. because being sort of feeling alone or or isolated is is more dangerous and too bad today of smoking in terms of health outcomes. So there's new, I think, new constructs to how and where we live. And also with the emergence of technologies like self-driving cars, right? I was in Mountain View the other day. I think I saw three self-driving cars from Waymo, the Google spin out. You know, that can enable folks to get around or live in more remote areas, but still be able to come to San Francisco. And that will change real estate and housing prices as well, because it used to be location, location, location. But when you can jump in your uh, Uber uh, drone that will take you to San Francisco and you might live in Santa Cruz without two hours of driving, that will change how and where people live as well. Well, I want to be able to fly that drone. I mean, how much faster can we get to Santa Cruz if we can just fly there? How how soon till we have flying cars? Well, I was just in London and saw a live demo of sort of a flying uh, electric powered, uh, not even drone, but piloted little hover cycle, which would enable you to really zip around. I think it has 20 minutes of battery. Some folks think that might be the future transportation where you're, we'll hop on that. You'll either drive it yourself, but arguably just like with driving, the robots are coming and self-driving cars and self-driving drones are emerging faster than we might expect. One of the Singularity University early startups was um, Matternet in 2010, which had the idea of using drones to deliver things like drugs and vaccines to remote locations. And now they're rolling out in, in Europe and in, in uh, developing countries. There's a company called Zipline, which is a already a billion-dollar startup out of San Francisco that is servicing over a thousand clinics in Rwanda. So how we can deliver products devices, drugs, medical elements, but also transport. I think we'll see drone transportation certainly here in the next 10 years. I think in Dubai, there's already uh, plans to roll that out in the next couple of years. Oh my gosh, we're just going to see so many changes. So with that, there's a lot of fear about uh, the stock market today and the economy. And you know we're now the longest expansion. People want to know where to put their money. It seems like, and I've always said that you you don't have to answer this because this is a question you may not know the answer for, but I've always said, hey, you can't make any more land. Now, maybe that's not true. Maybe we can fly to Mars and you know create societies there, or, or we can maybe build out the oceans or build up more. But still, at the end of the day, so far, we can't build more earth and dirt to be able to create more housing or more retail. I mean, do you think personally that investing in real estate could end up being a very good investment over the next 10 or 20 years as we're seeing people uh, stay in their homes and we're seeing future generations growing, I mean, and, and people living longer? I would say yes. I mean, certainly everyone wants a place to live, but the form and how that's happening is has a potential to shift. You know, you can look at comparable markets like Japan, where there are very small homes where you could add in new technologies like augmented and virtual reality to, you know, you might be in a small apartment, but feel like you have an ocean view or at the top of Twin Peaks. Uh, social virtual reality as well can bring people together. And even the nature of work, we talked about, you know, where houses might be, but the future of work is often remote work. And again, 
that might change real estate and pricing because people can live almost wherever they want to be. Usually it's at a Starbucks with a Wi-Fi connection, um, mm-hmm. but uh, can change how and where people uh, spend their lives as well as how they um, interact. And does everybody need to buy a lawnmower or uh, have an RV? Now we're in the sharing economy, right? Um, I think I'm imagining 10, 20 years from now, the retirees may just have a self-driving RV and drive around the country and they you know, wake up in Yosemite the next day uh, in Wyoming. And it'll self-drive them where they want to be. That might be interesting, <laughs> interesting <laughs> retirement concept uh, to, to kind of blend these things together uh, as well. So long answer, I think, you know, obviously real estate is proven to be a, a pretty good investment long-term in, in many markets. But, you know, with shifting demographics, aging populations, do you want to invest in hospitals anymore? We're, we're entering an era of more, you know, virtual care. I think we'll need less hospital beds. Folks who are in those beds will be sicker. But we're seeing the advent of virtualized care where you can do, obviously, telehealth consults, have sensors and diagnostics, even labs on a chip in your home, which will change the nature of how and where we get medical care. So, you know, when I think about investing in hospital towers, I would probably think more about, you know, the outpatient clinics and virtualized care, or we're seeing, you know, the minute clinics and CVSs and Walgreens try and bring primary care to your local pharmacy or services, uh, which will deliver your, your drugs by drone. You know, Amazon Health Prime will probably be here soon too. So those are all things that can impact how and where we live uh, in this exponential age. Mm, Fascinating. Well, it seems like nations are competing today to be the first and the best in AI. How would you say the U.S. compares to, say, China or other nations who are developing AI? I think we're in a danger of sort of losing our advantage. I mean, some of it is policy-based. There was a recent story in Bloomberg about you know, academic medical centers, you know, losing or, or sort of having to send their Chinese postdocs and researchers home. And they used to stay here and provide a lot of the impetus. A lot of the great startups and technologies have come from folks from overseas coming to the U.S. Now they're being blocked by some of the White House policies from getting here. Uh, and I think we have a danger in losing our edge. Uh, I think AI, I like to think of more as IA, intelligence augmentation, is going to start blending into our lives and already has in, in so many ways, you know, particularly in healthcare, where Part of the future will be having your own sort of AI health coach and concierge that's going to learn you and give you nudges to help keep you healthy or pick up disease early. You know, you know the check engine light on your wrist. You know, the Apple Watches today can already pick up heart abnormalities and changes in behavior. So I, you know, I know China and other folks in the world are, are moving very quickly in the AI space. It's going to be the new sort of uh, battleground, I think. And the better algorithms you have, the better you can predict both financial markets as well as you know, medical issues and therapies. It's a big space where there's lots of potential and sort of competition. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, that was that was very, very interesting. I don't know how that will change over the next five years in terms of America, you know, getting on the bat. Well, I think one way it's changing, I mean, it's already impacting the investment world. At Singular University, we have, you know, I run a program called Exponential Medicine, but there's also one Exponential Finance, you know, how do you invest and AI agents are changing the game of, you know, financial advisors. We have, uh, I use something like Wealthfront, you know, to do investments with sort of AI assistance. Again, as I mentioned, more of your healthcare will be driven by AI and machine learning and big data and the ability to, you know, now take all this massive amounts of quote-unquote exponential data, turn that into actual information, whether it's about investments or your health or your community, has a ton of potential. It also has its downsides as well around privacy and who controls the AI engines. And I always like to say that almost every technology has a plus and a minus. You can 3D print a medical device. You can 3D print a gun. You can use an AI to help discover a drug or to uh, 
you know, uh, co-opt uh, an economic market. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, we have to be kind of careful with these tools and think, what are the, some of the, the potentials downstream when, for example, in 10 years, there'll be a $100 genome and we can all be sequenced? What's going to happen to your life insurance or health insurance when you may be a genetic eight or a genetic three? You know, and, and, and what happens when your employer has information about your healthcare risks, you know, or your likelihood to live to 90 or to, to 60? So lots of both policy and ethics issues that we need to be mindful of as technology accelerates. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because there's still a lot of people that won't join 23andMe and they don't want their medical records online, but they're probably already online would be my guess, (laughs) somehow. Well, there's the potential. I I like to encourage folks actually to think of themselves not just as blood donors or or organ donors, but as data donors. I mean, let's look at a a recent example. You know, uh, we're only 12 years into the smartphone world, you know, the iPhone and sort of Google Maps on our mobile devices only became ubiquitous, you know, basically 10 years ago. Uh, now, we, most of us couldn't imagine driving without Google Maps or Waze. That's crowdsourcing your speed and location. That's kind of private data. But that builds the map around us. What if we had a Google Maps or Waze for your health and your health journey or your investment path that was based on encouraging folks to share and using technologies like blockchain to let you opt in and opt out and keep things hopefully secure and private? But there is a power of sharing that will hopefully benefit all of us. All ships will sort of rise. And I think we can think about building the ways of everything from your financial plan to your health path. If we all can weave through the, the, the eye of that storm and put safeguards in place, but not be overly protective of data, because I think data wants to be free and, and that creates a lot of opportunity and, and economic benefit as well. Fascinating. Uh, what about jobs? I mean, there's a lot of concern that robots are going to take jobs, but some people say, no, it'll just create more jobs. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's been a concern even all the way back to, you know, the, the beginning of the industrial age when the loom workers, you know, the folks used to weave, get replaced by machines or, mm-hmm. you know, I think it creates new opportunities, hopefully for folks to work at the top of their game. Yes, robots are coming. I mean, let's take a very common issue. Everyone knows, you know, the disruption that Uber and Lyft brought to the taxi world. Mm. And now arguably we'll have self-driving cars and trucks, which are already very close to being on the roads in a normal fashion. What happens to the future of drivers, as an example? Mm-hmm. Um, in medicine, I don't think we're going to replace the radiologist or the dermatologist or the pathologist with an AI element. There's already a shortage of most of those specialties, but we'll start to augment them. It won't be the AI replacing the doctor, but the doctor who uses AI will replace those who don't. And that will be similar if you're you know, a broker or uh, building a business. We need to be collaborative with these sorts of tools moving forward. I think you know, some jobs, yes, will be replaced, but hopefully that gives people the opportunity to work at the top of their license. In, at least in healthcare, but also to be doing um, newer paths to creativity and, and creating value. Excellent. Actually, would you just mind explaining what Singularity University is and how people can be involved in it somehow? Sure. It's uh, now a 10-year-old institution based in the heart of Silicon Valley at NASA Ames and Mountain View. I've been on the founding faculty. I chair medicine. There's also elements and tracks for AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, genomics, finance. The idea, in a nutshell, is to help educate, enable, and empower today and today's leaders and future leaders to understand the power and potential of rapidly accelerating sometimes exponential technologies from Moore's Law on our smartphone to 3D printing to virtual reality to nanotech to blockchain. Where are they now? How you might use those to disrupt uh, whole industries? Mm-hmm. You know, Kodak went bust. Uh, thanks to Instagram and, and digital photography, you know, uh, Kodak went away uh, as well. Lots of examples of companies being disrupted and being supplanted by new technology. So it may be to 
address a local business issue, but more broadly, Singularity University likes to help focus on addressing grand challenges from poverty, education, to global health, and how do we use everything you know from wearable sensors to machine learning to virtual reality to chatbots and drones to solve solutions in new global ways and impact billions of folks. So we have a variety of programs from five-day executive programs to I run a program called Exponential Medicine, all focused on the future of healthcare. The website is su.org for Singularity University. There's lots of opportunities for folks to think about the future of you know real estate, investing. And if you are an investor in any form, you need to be thinking about where the puck is going to be. What are the potentials to really impact and solve? And it's the solutions and the companies that emerge that are solving grand challenges. Many of them are using these fast-paced technologies where I think the opportunity is to be a, a winner from the investor side, but also from the innovator and entrepreneurship lens. So check out su.org for lots of elements. And if you're interested in healthcare, check out exponentialmedicine.com. Fascinating. Oh, well, this is great stuff. I uh, really appreciate you being here on The Real Wealth Show. I think the bottom line is people need to really stay on top of what's happening and understand that today's world, it's not going to be the same in, in five or 10 years. And generally, I should say good investors see those trends coming. And I'll leave you with one thought. I mean, in terms of trends, you know, health is wealth. <laughs> Take care of your health. You know, be worth $10 billion, but if you're not healthy, it's a bit of a so what. And we know that the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States is based on uh, medical issues, you know, getting too many medical bills or emergencies on the healthcare side. So I think it's really a combined element. The economy, your 18, 19% of our GDP is based on our sick care healthcare system. And uh, we need new mindsets and solutions in that realm. And that, you know, anybody out there listening can be a catalyst for the future of health and medicine by simply trying, you know, if you have high blood pressure, you know, connect to blood pressure cuffs and that data to your doctor, whether they want to see it or not. Uh, start to use some of these tools for yourself, your friends, your family, your employees, and sort of start to think a bit exponentially about what the potentials are in healthcare or investment. There's a quote from Bill Gates that we tend to overestimate what will happen in a year and underestimate what will happen in a decade. Mm -hmm. I think the next decade is going to be quite incredible in terms of what we see uh, in terms of the acceleration across many industries and fields. Fascinating. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel, so much for being here on The Real Wealth Show and sharing your insights. All right. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwealthshow.com. 